So normally I do notes on podcasts with entrepreneurs. So this is a little different. Um, this is a video actually found on YouTube. Um, I kept seeing clips from it and I couldn't find the entire interview. Um, and I found out why, because it's called Steve Jobs, The Lost Interview. So YouTube actually had it for sale and I decided to buy it. And um, I decided an hour and 12 minutes worth of uh, access to Steve Jobs' brain was definitely worth $10. So I bought it and I took notes and I'm just going to run over the parts that I found particularly fascinating. I also leave links uh, in the email below um, for the parts that are on YouTube that are free and then also a link to the full one if you want to rent or buy it. Okay, so first, uh, how this this works is it was an interview, uh, just to give you some context, it was an interview uh, took place in 1995, about 18 months before Steve Jobs returned to Apple. And it's like I said a minute ago, it was an hour and 12 minutes long. And the entire time, the camera's just on Steve Jobs' face. And he talks for about 99% of it. The interviewer uh, barely interrupted. Okay, so Steve Jobs uh, starts out, uh, he's asked the question, how did you get involved with personal computers? And Steve said, I had the privilege of using a time-sharing terminal at NASA's AIM Research Center. I was 10 or 11 years old. It was remarkable. You could write a program. The machine would take your idea and it would execute it. You would see instant results. It was an incredibly thrilling experience and I was captivated. And he continues, when I was 12 years old, I called Bill Hewlett. There was no such thing as an unlisted telephone number back then. I asked him for parts for a frequency counter that I was building. He talked to me for 20 minutes. I will never forget that. He gave me the parts and a summer job working at Hewlett Packard. That made a remarkable influence on me. Hewlett Packard formed my view of what a company was. At Hewlett Packard, I saw the first desktop computer ever made. It was completely self-contained. I fell in love with it. I met Steve Wozniak around this time. He was the first person I met that knew more about electronics than I did. One day, Steve and I read about this guy named Captain Crunch. He had claimed that he figured out how to make free telephone calls. We thought this must be a hoax. We started looking through the library. We started looking through the libraries looking for the secret tones that would allow you to do this. We found an AT&T technical journal that laid out the whole thing. It was another moment that I will never forget. We set out to make a device that made these tones. And so they were successful. They built uh, what they claimed to be the most sophisticated blue box of the time. It was completely digital. You wouldn't have to do anything. It would just hook it up and it would automatically allow you to make uh, free uh, long-distance telephone calls. So they called. They would call all over the world. They once. Uh, he tells the story of how they once prank called um, the, the Vatican. They tried to get the Pope out of bed saying that uh, they were in, um, imitating uh, Henry Kissinger. And they thought it was just hilarious. But um, the Steve distills, like, why was this such an important part of his life? Like, why is he talking about it 30 years later? And he says, this was important because we were young and we learned that we could build something that could control billions of dollars worth of infrastructure in the world. Just two people who didn't know much could build a little thing that could control a giant thing. I love the idea of um, like uh, the run up to the story where he's like, listen, we just needed this information. We searched everywhere. And with the right idea, that was an, uh, a step up in leverage for just two you know, relatively poor kids at the time to build something that could control billions of dollars worth of infrastructure. And he talks about, he says, just two people who didn't know much could build a little thing that could control a giant thing. That was an incredible lesson. 
I don't think there ever would have been an Apple computer if it wasn't for this experience. So it kind of gives him the confidence to, to believe in his own ideas. So then he was asked the question, why did you build a personal computer? And he says, necessity. There was free time sharing computers available, but we needed a terminal. We couldn't afford one, so we built one. The Apple One was an extension of this terminal with a microprocessor added. So he's talking about how the Apple One came about by basically the combination of two separate projects. But the first part of that project was just we wanted a terminal so we could actually get this free time sharing computer down to Mountain View. Um, and then um, he talks a little bit about the origination story of how Apple started their first sale. We had made some printed circuit boards. I walked into a computer shop to see if I could sell our boards. The owner said, I will take 50 of those, but I want them fully assembled. We had never thought about that before, but we said, why not? Let's try. I called a bunch of suppliers and convinced them to give us the parts we needed on a net 30 days credit. We built the products and sold 50 of them. Suddenly, we were in business. So then he goes on to talk about the different, um, the different scope of ambition between him and Wozniak, where Wozniak was perfectly happy just building hardware um, for, for hobbyists, for other people like him. And uh, Steve had this realization. He says, I realized there was a much bigger market. For every one hardware hobbyist that could assemble their own computer, there were a thousand people that couldn't do that but wanted to mess around with software. So my dream for the Apple II computer was to sell the first real packaged personal computer. Um, and then he was asked this question. They, uh, he said, you started Apple at 21 years old. How did you learn to run a company? And I love um, his thinking here. He says, I always asked why you do things. The most common answer you get is that, th is that that is the way it was done. Nobody thinks about things very deeply in business. This is what I found. I call it folklore. In business, a lot of things are done because they were done yesterday and the day before. So what that means is if you're willing to ask a lot of questions and think about how to do things, you can learn business pretty fast. It is not the hardest thing in the world. It is not rocket science. And then just a great quote. Uh, that was just a random quote that I wanted to uh, take note of. I view computer science as a liberal art. Then he was asked, because, you know, for a lot of people, um, at least for myself, uh, you know, I was a, a, a little, little kid when Steve started Apple. Um, and so I knew him of like the second generation Apple, right? But for people that uh, were around to see this, like Steve, it's hard to understand that Steve Jobs, you know, built a billion dollar company in his 20s and he was doing it in the 80s. Um, so he's asked the question, what is it like to get rich? And he had a really interesting, um, I mean, a really interesting answer. So let me just read that to you. I was worth a million dollars when I was 23, over $10 million when I was 24, and over $100 million when I was 25. It wasn't that important because I never did it for the money. The most important thing was the products we were making. I didn't think about it a great deal. I never sold any stock. I really believed the company would do well over the long term. So the interviewer brings up um, all the ideas that Steve and a bunch of other people in the computer industry at the time got from um, visiting Xerox Park. Basically, Xerox Park had an abundance of ideas they didn't really know what to do with. So Steve talked uh, about that. That is like a life-changing um, moment for his life. So he says, when I visited Xerox Park, they showed me the graphical user interface. 
I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was obvious to me that all computers would work like this someday. The inevitability was obvious. Um, so he, <laughs> um, a lot of this interview, I would say maybe a th- 15 to 20% of it is about John Scully. <laughs> and this is, um, you know, the, the kind of what I miss Steve not being here is just his like, um, his like unfettered way of talking. <laughs> so he's going to have some funny quotes here. So he said, John Scully came from PepsiCo. They would change their product once every 10 years. If you were a product person, you couldn't change the course of that company very much. So who influenced the success of PepsiCo? The sales and marketing people. They were the ones who ran the company. It turns, and this is actually a really, um, a really interesting idea. Now, remember, he's saying this in 95. You know, so we're, what, 23 years later? 24 years later? And I think this is more true than everything. He says, and turns out the same thing can happen to technology companies who get monopolies. Example, if you're a product person at IBM or Xerox and you make a better printer, so what? When you have, mono- when you have monopoly market share, the company isn't any more successful. So the sales and marketing people end up running the companies. The product people get driven out. The companies forget what it means to make great products. The product genius that brought them to that mono- monopolistic position gets rotted out. And so he talks about like what it, what happens in, in this case, like at a company where um, the 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 great product folks are no longer able to ship good products. So he says they have these companies have no conception of the craftsmanship that is required to take a good idea and turn it into a good product. And just a note I left in the email is um, to understand Apple's design process, I'd recommend reading the book Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. I read it last month. It's really it's really fantastic. It's written by one of the programmers um, that was responsible for Safari and then also for the um, the keyboard on the, uh, the first version of the iPhone. So he, uh, Steve's still talking about this whole what happens when you know these these companies kind of get lost he says people get confused companies get confused when they start uh, when they start getting bigger they want to replicate their initial success they think there was some magic in the process that made that success so they try to institutionalize process across the company before long they get confused and think the process is the content um, and then now here's some of uh, this, the parts I was chuckling at earlier. So he said, after I left, John Scully got a really serious disease. It is the disease that thinking a really great idea is 90% of the work. The problem with that is there is a tremendous amount of craftsmanship in between a great idea and a great product. And he talks a little bit about, more about uh, what it's like to, to build a great product. He says, as you've evolved that great idea, it changes and grows. It never comes out like it starts because you learn a lot more as you get into the subtleties of it. You also find that there are tremendous trade-offs you have to make. And then he, he tells us a little bit about what's going on in his mind when this is all, t- all taking place. He said, designing a product is keeping 5,000 things in your brain and fitting them all together in new and different ways to, to get what you want. And uh, I like this metaphor where he talks about like the, well, let me just read it to you. My metaphor for teams working on a product they are passionate about. And he tells a story from his childhood that I thought was really interesting. There was an 80-year-old man that lived on my street. 
One day he, sho- he showed me a dusty old rock tumbler in his garage. We took regular old ugly rocks and some liquid and powder and put them in the tumbler. He said, come back tomorrow. I came back the next day and we opened the can. We took out these amazingly beautiful polished rocks. The same common stones that had gone in through rubbing up against each other, creating a little friction, creating a little noise, had come out these beautiful polished rocks. It is through that group of incredibly talented people bumping against each other, working together, that they polish each other. They polish the ideas. Then he uh, goes on and I think makes another great point, especially considering it says 1995 when he's saying this, uh, about the anomaly in software. He says the difference between the average and the best in most things is 20 to 30%. So he's used the example of like a cab driver might get you to your destination 20%. Uh, The best cab driver in the world might get you to your destination 20% faster than like the average cab driver. And it's kind of like these these, um, differences are kind of bounded, right? But he says in software, the difference between average and the best is 50 to 1, maybe 100 to 1. Very few things in life are like this. And I have built a lot of my success off finding these truly gifted people. Um, So then he's asked the question. He said, uh, they asked him, tell us about your departure from Apple. And Job says, it was very painful. I'm not even sure I want to talk about it. I hired the wrong guy. He destroyed everything I spent 10 years working for, starting with me. Um, and this is uh, him, his description of what, what occurred and why he, he eventually had to leave Apple. He said, uh, he, meaning John Scully, he got on a rocket ship that was about to leave the pad. It left the pad and he got confused and thought he built the rocket ship. Then he changed the trajectory so it would inevitably crash into the ground. Um, so he's talking a little about the, like the macroeconomic environment that was taking place in, from 1984 to 1985 in the computer industry. And he says, the industry went into a recession. John didn't know what to do. He had not a clue. But John had an incredible survival instinct. He didn't, and this is a really interesting point too, he didn't get to be the president of PepsiCo without these instincts. John had cultivated a very close relationship with the board. And while he's describing this, he was asked, he's like, well, there were competing visions for the company. And Steve said, it wasn't so much competing visions for the company because I don't think John had a vision for the company. And so Steve talks about what he thought they should have done back then. He says, I believe we needed to rein in the the expenses in the Apple II area and that we needed to be spending very heavily in the Macintosh area. He felt that the Macintosh was the future. And he said John's vision was that he should remain CEO of the company. Um, but interesting enough, even with, you know, a lot of Steve Jobs has this, uh, this like, reputation for being very arrogant and bullheaded and et cetera, et cetera. But he admits, um, even a few years later, he says, I don't think I was capable of running the entire company at that time. He said he was 30 years old. It was it had like a $2 billion market cap. He wasn't sure if he could actually do that. So he said, I was told there was no job for me. It would have been far smarter for Apple to let me work on the next product. I volunteered to start a research division. I said, give me a few million dollars a year and I will go hire some really great people. They said no. Um, So that's interesting because if you think about the acquisition of Next, they effectively or essentially um, spent close to $500 million uh, rehiring him. 
Okay, so it says, uh, when I left Apple, we had a 10-year lead on everyone else in the industry. We watched Microsoft take 10 years to catch up. Apple has spent close to $5 billion on R&D, meaning from the time that um, Steve left to the time he's giving this interview. And he says, what did they get for it? Their differentiation has eroded. Um, so they start talking a little bit about Microsoft. And of course, Steve has a lot of strong opinions on that. And he says, Microsoft has two characteristics. They, one, they are very strong opportunists. And he, he says he doesn't mean that in a negative way. Two, they just keep on coming. Uh, the problem with Microsoft is they have no taste. They don't think of original ideas, and they don't bring much culture into their products. And he gives a description of what he believes is an example of culture in a product. He says, proportionally spaced fonts come from typesetting and beautiful books. That is where one gets the idea. If it wasn't for the Mac, they would never have that in their products, meaning Microsoft. Um, he continues, I have no problem with their success. I have a problem that they make really third-rate products. Their products have no spirit to them. They are very pedestrian. They are McDonald's. <laughs> um, oh, and so th this is actually really interesting because then, you know, he starts talking about what he sees as like the future of what's going to happen next in technology. And he says, software is infiltrating everything we do these days. In business, software is one of the most potent competitive weapons. It is becoming an incredible force in this world. Software will be a major enabler in our society. Then he talks a little bit about the internet. The web is incredibly exciting because it is the fulfillment of our dream that the computer would ultimately be a device for communication. With the web that is, with the web that is happening, it is exciting because Microsoft doesn't own it and therefore there is a tremendous amount of innovation happening. The web will be profound on what it does to our society. Um, so he talks a little bit about what he thinks those changes are going to be. And he says about 15% of the goods and services in the United States are sold through catalogs and television. All of that is going to the web and more. Billions and billions will be sold on the web. A way to think about it is it's the ultimate direct-to-customer distribution channel. Again, like I know I've said this a few times, but he's saying this in 1995. There was, what, 3%? of five percent of people on the internet as there is today like i don't even know what the, the percentage is but it was really really tiny another way to think about it is it uh, is it uh, another way to think about it is the smallest company in the world uh can look as large as the largest company on the world uh on in the world on the web uh the web will be the defining technology the defining social moment for computer for computing i think it will be huge um, and then he was finally asked uh, what his passion was and what drives him. And I've heard him say this in a few other areas, but I want to reiterate it here because I think it's a, it's a really beautiful metaphor. He said, I read an article when he was talking about when he was young, he was reading an article in Scientific American. He said, I read an article that measured the efficiency of locomotion for various species on the planet. So how much energy that he used to, to move over a specific amount of distance, right? And he says, the condor won. It was the most efficient. Mankind, the crown of creation, came in with an unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list. But someone had the brilliance to measure a human on a bicycle. It blew away the condor. This really had an impact on me. It made me realize humans are tool builders. We build tools that can dramatically amplify our innate human abilities. 
the personal computer is the bicycle of the mind. I believe that with every bone in my body. Of all the inventions of humans, the computer will rank near, if not at the top. It is the most awesome tool we have ever invented. And finally, I'm going to close uh, with his answer to the question, how do you know what is the right direction to move in? And before I just read you his answer, I just want to say that um, this very much, his answer very much echoes what I'm trying to do here with Founders Notes, where I'm trying to disseminate, take, take ideas from one person and spread them to many. And Steve tells us why he thinks that's important. Um, with, with, again, the question is, how do you know what, it, what is the right direction to move in? And he says, it comes down to trying to expose yourself to the best things that humans have done and then try to bring those things into what you were doing. Picasso had a saying, good artists copy, great artists steal. And we have always been shameless about stealing great ideas.